0: So a question, just to start out, when you think of God, what do you picture? Or if and when you pray and you uh, think of who you're praying to, if you were to suddenly see him face to face, which I admit would probably probably be very alarming, what would he look like? In 2018, there was a where researchers at UNC they asked more than 500 test subjects, all American Christians, uh, to sort through thousands of computer-generated faces and uh, repeatedly choose which face of a random pair looked more divine. And uh, then they blended the panel's 153,000 choices into a single image, and they produced this image of God. Uh, The author writes, American Christians no longer envision a deity as the fierce, judgmental power figure Michelangelo painted on the Sistine Chapel ceiling. The face of God in America is, in fact, a gentle yet distinctly male being with wide eyes, a warm smile, and a friendly expression, and I would add, a little creepy. Just saying. And part of me can't help but wonder if uh, they had taken... gotten a group that was specifically of a different ethnicity or a different color or a different gender, how that might have affected. But though we may not think about it much, we all have some image of God in our mind. And part of what we're going to discover today is how we view or perceive God is going to directly affect any sense of passion about God or towards God in our lives, Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, Just so you know, you're kind of coming in in the middle of the movie because we're in this series, Piecing It All Together, and we're doing this series of talks because there are many who struggle to understand how we call what we call the Bible all fits together. And and the God of the Old Testament, and we're just trying to figure out how, how does it fit together? Is it reliable? Is it relevant? Is it helpful? The God of the Old Testament Kind of seems at times like a bloodthirsty tyrant, while the God of the New Testament seems at times to be this loving, grandfatherly God. And What we're discovering is the Bible isn't a book. It's a gathering of books, 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a period of 2,000 years on three different continents in three different languages, all telling one singular story about God's pursuit of humanity. And to help piece it all together, we're looking at eight different key figures from beginning to end, chapters in this larger story to help us understand this larger narrative that's taking place, a narrative that is going somewhere, a narrative that you and I are a part of. And it's very important for you to be able to understand the larger story and how you fit into it and how it matters to your life and to the lives of everyone around you, everyone you care about. So if you missed any of this, I strongly encourage you to get online. Just go to newlifewichita.com. You can listen to the podcast, uh, watch the videos, because this morning we're pressing forward. And the person that we are focusing on this morning is someone that most, if not all of you, have heard of, and that's David, King David. He was the second king of Israel, and just as God had made a huge promise to Abraham, God makes an extraordinary promise to David, that David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That, David, your, from your lineage is going to come a king my people that will be a king forever. And the king that God was referring to was Jesus, which we'll talk about in three weeks. But as we look at the life of David, the word that stands out for us is passion. Now, for those of you who would say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jesus follower, He's Lord of my life. Many of you, many of you can remember a camp experience or a weekend experience or a weekend retreat or some moment or season in your life where you're like a freshly minted new believer. And in a profound way, the God of the universe seemed to take central focus in your life. And you were just so energized by your faith. And when you came to church, you couldn't take enough notes and you couldn't get enough of your when you sang the songs, you felt emotion. And for some of you, that's the place that you're at now. And and you're not driven by the opinions of other people and talking about your faith isn't intimidating. It's just a natural overflow of who you are. For me, this was especially true when I was 19, when faith became real to me like never before, and I just felt such a gratitude and an awe and a passion for God and His love and His grace as demonstrated through Jesus Christ, and I just couldn't shut up about it, and I just couldn't get enough of church or our church community. Shauna and I, at the church that we met, and she had become a Christian just like two, three months before, Uh, they had, the church that we met at, they had services uh, every Sunday morning, Sunday night, we had Wednesday night college and career group. There was about 90 of us. Uh, Thursday nights was music and prayer night with hundreds and hundreds of people in the room. And anytime the doors were open, like we were there. And we just couldn't get enough. And when we weren't at the church building, we were often with our doing stuff with our college and career group and our friends throughout the week. And I wasn't shy about talking about my faith, especially with the sailors and the airmen that were on the ship that I was stationed on you know what was obvious to all whether they believed what i believed or not god had my heart and there are many of you as I talk through that you can you can relate. There was a season, there was a season or a time in your life where you just weren't phased by fear or the opinions of others. You just seemed to be more focused on God and more hopeful for the future than on the difficulties and the trappings of this life. A season where your relationship with God would be described as passionate. But the problem with that is it was just that, a season. And, and, and now it's something that you look back on instead instead of something that's part of your normal way of life now. It, it's almost as if it's as, you know, we got back to school or we got back to work. We got back to those difficult relationships. And somehow that passion, that zeal that we had for God, all the junk just kind of crept back and replaced God as the central focus of our life. And God was moved back to to the periphery again. And before long, we're just scared to death to share our faith. We're not as excited about heaven. And when we sense that God is calling us to do something crazy or courageous, it's like, yeah, I'm I'm not so sure about that. Whereas before it was just, yes, God. Now what do you want me to do? For whatever reason, we got back to the mundane day-to-day and God just became a Sunday thing. And if I read my Bible, it's kind of short, kind of sporadic, it's distracted in prayer. Well, I don't necessarily remember the last time I prayed. And talking to people about Christ, if it happens at all, it's just a religious exercise. And that passion, that passion we had for God was not sustained over a long period of time. And as we look at the life of David, there can almost be a sense of jealousy. Because from childhood to old age, David was able to sustain this passion Throughout his entire life. Now I'm not saying that God was, you know, happy, bounty-pounty, always smiling, never did anything wrong, life was just perfect and wrinkle-free. In fact, it was quite the opposite. But from the beginning, from beginning to end, when you look at the big picture of David's life, and if you were to ask, what did David give his life for, and what had David's primary passion, clearly from youth to death, it was God. In the beginning of his life, he's just a kid. He wanders onto a battle scene, and the Philistines are measuring up against the Jewish army, and they are defaming, insulting, and talking trash against the God of Israel. And David hears this guy, and he's like, "I don't know what's going to happen in the battle, but I'll tell you what's not going to happen: this guy is not going to be talking smack about my God. And if you're going to God, if you're calling me to do something crazy and courageous, just give me five rocks and let's get it on." And he faced death down in the most extraordinary way because he was about his God, and honoring God, when he becomes king, and he recognizes that God has called his nation to be a chosen nation, that through this nation that God wanted to become a lighthouse for the entire world. And a major symbol of God's presence and covenant with the nation was the Ark of the Covenant, and when David became king, it was in a foreign land, and he decided it needed to be in Jerusalem. So he gets together 30,000 of his soldiers, his best men, to go get it. And as it's coming back, we're told that David takes off his kingly robe, he strips down to his undergarments, and he dances before God with all of his might, in front of all of his men, all of the women that had traveled with them, and, and they're bringing back the symbol of God's presence. And his wife confronts David, says, you're making a fool of yourself, you're embarrassing yourself. And he says, I'm not concerned about the opinions of the people around me. They are not going to drive how I relate to my God. I am passionate about my God, and that is all that matters to me. And towards the end of his life as king, so that God can be represented on the earth, he wants to build this enormous temple to, to point people to God. But God says, No, that your, your hands are covered with blood. You've been a man of blood your whole life. You won't build it, but your son will build it. So what does David do? For a temple he will never see, he devotes the rest of his life to giving sacrificially and leading others to give sacrificially to the extent of billions of dollars, personal sacrifice to build a building he will never see because of his passion the passion for God that characterized his life. It's who he was. And as you pick up the Psalms, songs and poems written primarily by David, when you read these, they connect with us because he writes so authentically. Because he- He writes about when he's angry, he writes about when he's confused, when he's afraid, when he's hurt, and when he doesn't know what to do, and yet most of them just end up with God confessing his heart and worshiping God, saying, God, I will accept whatever you decide. My passion for you is not conditional. You are all I want. You are all I need. And as I look at David's life and the passion he was able to sustain consistently over decades, and I think about my life, I can be a little jealous. It's like, how did he sustain that? How do I sustain that? I mean, I'm in full-time ministry. Like, it's almost like I don't have an excuse. Like my whole vocation is God-centered and yet there can be long periods of time when I can get so caught up in the doing of church and the planning and the preparing and the administration and the hundreds of details channeling my, my time and my energy to serve others, to, to try and make a difference in life, to make a difference in your life, to be there for people. And without meaning to, my personal relationship, my personal relationship with God can end up on the periphery again. And then when things don't go, as I hope for you, for our community, I get frustrated i get discouraged and i can be tempted to wonder is god really with me now there are natural things that can stand in the way of us having sustained having sustained passionate relationship with god the first is part of passion is emotion right i mean some of you go look i'm not really an emotional guy or you know i've seen some people that are passionate about god I don't think I want to be like them because they are a little freaky. They seem a little crazy. But whatever the case, part of the passion is emotion. Emotion just simply can't be sustained over a long period of time. Emotions are unpredictable. They're up and they're down. I mean, it's called a honeymoon period for a reason. So one barrier to long-term sustained, passionate relationship with God is the fact that emotions are inconsistent. The other thing is distractions. I mean, no matter how much you love God, No matter how much he has your heart, in less than a half an hour or an hour, you're going to leave here. You're going to leave here, and you're going to go do lunch, or you're going to go home. You're going to go do homework. You're going to change a diaper. You're going to take out the trash. You're going to do the laundry. You're going to get ready for Monday, and then tomorrow, you have to start all the mundane stuff that you have to do through your work week. And there's all the screens and all the social media and the shows. And even if you love God with all of your heart, you still have to go back to school or you still have to go back to work. And if you get sick, your life will be interrupted indefinitely. And if your child gets sick or is teething, you're not going to get much sleep. And passion doesn't change the normal day-to-day demands and distractions of life and the repetitive things that we have to do over and over and over again. But the amazing thing is... David was the king of the most powerful nation in the region at the time. He had tons of distractions. And yet, somehow, his passion was sustained over a long period of time. And I go, what, what did he know that we don't? In Psalm 36, is one of the places that provides us the answer. It was David's view of God that was what enabled him to sustain a long Term passionate perspective of God. It was David's unwavering clarity as to who God really was and what he was really like that was the key. In Psalm 36, we see David's picture of how he viewed God. He describes him like this, and just compare this to your view and your perspective, what you think of when you think of God. David says, your faithful love, and he uses the, the Holy Hebrew name for God. That's why it's all caps. Your faithful love, O oh Lord, it reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness is so big, it reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is so huge, it's like the highest mountains. Your justice is so perfect, it's like the deepest sea. You, Lord, you're the one that preserve both people and beasts. How priceless is your unfailing love, O oh God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. See, David just described for us his picture, his view of God. This view, this picture, this understanding was what determined how and why he trusted God, followed God, obeyed God, how he related to God throughout his whole life. And and I think we can agree, David's perspective and view of God is extraordinary. It's magnificent. And for him, this was deeply, deeply personal. And this was worthy of all the passion that he exuded and all that he could give. Author A.W. Tozer once wrote, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he was right. Because if you stop to think about it, what comes to a person's mind when they think about God affects everything in your life and in my life. Every decision, every word, every action. because. That picture is one of trust or distrust. It's a picture of power or weakness. It's a, it's a picture of closeness or distance. It's a picture of awareness or indifference. But the problem for most of us that we face is for most of us, our picture of God is determined by our temporal, temporary life circumstances. For most of us, the lens we see God through is the lens of our past and our present life experiences, our church or our religious experience growing up. Our lens becomes the Monday, day-to-day circumstances or the difficult circumstances we faced, the relationship difficulties, the divorces, the financial struggles, the illnesses, the diseases, the death of loved ones, the seemingly unanswered prayers. And then we look at the greater world and what we see on news and on social media media. Or for those of us who are pretty comfortable, you know, we don't really have any big struggles or big crisis. Well, our picture of God is kind of like the kitchen fire extinguisher. Like it's a version of God that we just keep in the cabinet in case of fire when we need him. He's there, but he's on the periphery. And all of us are tempted to define what God looks like based on our temporal, temporary life circumstances. And for most of us, the picture of God that that generates is not worthy of passion. So it makes sense. For many of us, our picture of God is it's just too small. So it's, it's no wonder our passion for God is short-lived or non-existent when difficult things happen and life circumstances get harder and more mud and more junk is thrown on our picture of God. But the question we have to ask is, is that the God of David? Is that the God of the Bible? And ultimately, is that the God of Jesus. And again, we'll talk about Jesus in three weeks, but the, the key to David's unwavering passion was that he understood to let life's circumstances determine what your, your picture of God, it will develop and create a character of God that just doesn't exist. Because you and I end up with this made-up, fickle, unreliable God. And the fact is, we are horrible. We are horrible at determining what God is like and what God is up to based on life circumstances. I I think even of a situation that my wife and I went through just a couple months ago where she experienced a very difficult situation where a a, a promise was not able to be kept. And in that moment, her frustration ended up channeling it, channeled towards God. And then like six, seven weeks later, we discovered something that had that worked out, it actually would have been really, really bad. But in the moment, it's like, God, why would you put this in front of us and then jerk it away? We're just horrible at determining what God is up to based on life circumstances. It's one of the reasons that you and I, we've, you've got to spend more time in the scriptures because again and again, part of what we experience is people like, just like you and me who, because of circumstances, draw completely incorrect and inaccurate determinations about God and what He's up to and His presence and work in their lives. There are just so many examples of men and women for whom God felt absent, indifferent, or unaware, who later on discovered that they actually had His undivided attention. There are also others who, because they had everything that they could really possibly need or want, They kind of assumed, well, God must be thrilled with me, only to discover he wasn't. In fact, they were kind of his enemies. See, David was committed to defining who God was as God revealed himself, not through others' opinions or life circumstances. I mean, early on, David is told, hey, you're going to be the future king. But the next thing you know, he's running for his life from the guy who is currently king. He's hiding in caves, and any of us would have thought, God, whatever you are, you're not faithful. You're not dependable. Or as I mentioned, when David's coming with his 30,000 soldiers, bringing back the Ark of the Covenant, and he's dancing, he's rejoicing, it's a huge party, they're transporting the Ark on a cart, the Ark begins to tip, and one of David's men, one of his friends, reaches out to stabilize the Ark, and God kills him right there on the spot. And he must have thought, God, whatever you are, you're you're not faithful. You're not dependable. If that's what you're like, that's not fair. That's not what a fair God does. That's not what a loving, faithful, kind God does. Or after his affair with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered to cover it up, it was all his fault. And yet an innocent child was the one who was caused to die. And David could have said, God, I, I don't know what you're like. But I know you're not good, because a good God doesn't do that. A good God does not allow something like that to happen. Or later in David's life, I mean, like all of us who have kids or have raised kids, it's like he's trying to be a good parent, trying to raise his children the best he could, only to have his son rape his daughter, and then his other son kills that son, and then that son leads a coup to take over his father, and his father David has to flee and David could have responded, God, I don't know what you are or what you're like, but, but a God who knows and cares about me, He doesn't let any of this happen. A God who is with me and for me does not let this happen to me or to my family. David faced incredibly different, difficult circumstances. Sometimes self-inflicted and life just kept trying to hurl mud and junk onto David's picture of God, but David would not let it happen. David understood if we try to work within our little 20, 30, 50, 70, 80 years to determine what God is like based on life experience, God will be ever-changing, unreliable, and unworthy of our passion. But David said, not so with me. I am allowing God to be defined as He has defined himself throughout the ages. And that's part of what this whole series is about. It's about, discovering, it's about discovering how God has defined himself and the picture that he has given of himself as he related to Adam and Abraham and Moses and David and all the way down. And David saw a God who has been loving and faithful and righteous and just throughout all of time. And he says this, this, this is who God is. So it's no wonder, it's no wonder that David was able to sustain his passion over a lifetime. So here's our question. What can we do to begin to experience that same thing? And, and the answer kind of depends on where you're at in this process or in the journey. For some of you, you're kind of new to this whole idea. You're exploring faith. or You're just dipping your toe back in after avoiding or stepping away for church, from church for a long time. So your simple next step is just keep coming back. Just keep listening online to take the time to work through your questions and your doubts, and maybe for some of you to just let some of those wounds heal. You might even decide to test drive a small group or decide to volunteer just once a month on one of our teams. We're a community where you can belong before you believe anything. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to begin connecting with others in your life who you look at their life and you go, you know what? They're the real deal. Like there's just something about their faith like they're wonderfully, not obnoxiously passionate about their faith. And you just begin to meet with them over coffee or lunch or a beer or whatever and just talk about it for others of you, maybe for many of you. Your next step is to leave here to log off, to stop defining God and your view of Him based on your interpretation of your life circumstances and your past religious experience. Maybe it's time to begin to get into this gathering of documents, especially Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Sit at the feet of Jesus daily. Pick up a hard copy. Pick up the, download the YouVersion Bible app. And to stop just letting other people read it for you or tell you what it says, including me, and just start reading it for yourself. It's time for you to dive in to see what God is really like, how He has defined Himself. And again, maybe to step into a small group, a co ed group, a college group, a men's group, a women's group, or just to start connecting with two or three other people who they've got some similar questions and just dive in together and to put yourself in a posture and a position going, okay, God, I'm going to let you define for me who you are and what you're like. Many of you, for your sake and for the sake of the next generation, It's time, honestly, to just stop making excuses as to why you're too busy and start making undistracted time to jump in and begin to truly get to know the God of the Bible, especially the God of Jesus, to get the true version of God into your hearts, driven so deep so that you come to know him and this way especially in those moments when we face circumstances that could skew our view and picture of God to something other than who He really is, that we'll be able to hang on to who God really is, a God with an unrelenting love and an unfailing faithfulness to you by name, whose goodness is movable like a mountain, and whose justice is full and complete and complete. In the end, every wrong that you experience in this life will be made right in the life to come. A God who, in our darkest moments, is not far and is ready to be our never ending place of refuge. The one who we can turn to and pour out our hearts and our disappointments and our cares and concerns. And He cares, He knows you by name. That's who God is. And then we begin to drive that image into our hearts and our minds. And God says that that truth will begin to transform us by the renewing of our minds. But we've got to decide, am I going to determine who you are, God, by my inability to interpret things? Or am I going to determine who you are by how you have revealed yourself over thousands of years? And just to help us, to send this out, I just want to take this one little passage from David in four key words about who God really is. And I just want you to repeat them after me. The four words that God has used to describe himself with through David are loving, faithful, righteous, and just. So let's just say those four words together. God is loving, faithful, righteous, and just. See, the circumstances of life are not going to tell you who that's who God is. The circumstances of life are not going to tell you that that is what God is like. In fact, from day one of humanity, the singular strategy of the deceiver that we were introduced to in week one has always been God is not trustworthy. God is not loving. He is not faithful. He is not righteous or he he is not just. He is holding out on you. That has been the strategy from day one and life circumstances aren't going to tell you that no matter how badly you have behaved in your life, no matter what you do, no matter what you did last night, that the God of the universe towards you is loving, faithful, righteous, and just, immovable in that. The stuff of life is going to cause us to wonder, is he? Is he really? Is he really good to the core of who he is? See, we've got our questions about those that seem to be trapped in extreme poverty in Africa or the human atrocities that are happening around the world or the Mideast or the corruption, crime and poverty that has caused millions to flee to the southern border of our country. And then in our own personal lives, we face struggle. Maybe you grew up facing neglect or abuse or abandonment. Maybe you're single and you don't want to be. Maybe you battle depression and anxiety. Maybe you feel anxious about your finances. And there are those who have experienced the crushing pain of not being able to get pregnant or having a miscarriage or losing a child. And life circumstances will cause us to wonder, is He? Is He really loving? Is he really faithful? Is he really just? And I'm here to tell you that God, the God of the Bible, the God of David, the God of Jesus, is a God who is love, faithfulness, goodness, and justice embodied. He is defined by it, He's the source. And someday, when we get to the very end and all of His judgments are finally made clear in front of everyone. Every wrong in this life will suddenly and finally and forever all be made right. It will all make sense. And with that clarity, no one will be able to say that, God, God, you are unloving, unfaithful, unrighteous, or unjust. See, here's why this is so important for you to know. Because again, in just a bit, you're going to go home. You're going to log off. And he's going to continue, keep doing the thing that you prayed that God would help him stop doing. She's still going to act the same. This week, your coworkers, your boss, they're still going to treat you the same way that you've asked God to intervene and do something about. And he doesn't seem to do anything about it. For some people listening to my voice right now, about this time next year, the prognosis is going to come back bad. And they're gonna say, there's nothing we can do. Some of you are going to experience a complicated birth or a miscarriage. Some of you are going to experience the loss of someone very close to you. Every single one of us, eventually, we're gonna stand by a graveside and we're gonna wonder where the time went. And how could a good, loving, fair God allow this to happen? And the bottom line is, in that moment, you won't know. You'll have no idea. And the temptation in that moment will be to allow that experience to shape your picture and your view of God. And if you do that, then God is going to continue to be a shifting shadow. Always changing. Never reliable. Because He's defined based on our circumstances and our feelings of the day. And if God as he really is, isn't ingrained in who you are, then he's just going to be an 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 irrelevant God in a cabinet for when I need him. Or the inevitable junk of life is going to throw you into a tailspin and you're going to just end up wondering, is he really loving? Is he really faithful? is he truly righteous and just and ironically, even in reading the Bible especially the Old Testament if we're not careful, we can be tempted to cherry pick certain situations and passages and circumstances that will cause us to to ask the same questions but, it's because we read or look at these things in isolation from a temporal, temporary earthly perspective as if there's no more life than this life because in the end, and again, I need you to hear this The God of the Bible is eternal. He created every human with an eternal soul. And we're tempted to look at how someone's life goes and how it ends on this earth as if it is the end. And it's not. For those of us that believe in God, we believe there's more to this life than this life. And that in the scheme of eternity, our few years, our few decades on this earth is just a blip on the screen of eternity. And no matter how one's physical life goes and ends on this earth, in the end, God will somehow make everything right. And isn't that what we all hope for? That somehow every wrong ever done to us, every wrong done by us, every wrong experienced by those we love, will somehow be made right. Because He is loving, faithful, righteous, and just. And that is God who is worthy of sustained passion. And for some of us, we look at our experience and think, you know, I felt it once. Maybe I felt it long ago. Or I felt it for a season or a weekend. And I just wonder, where did it go? And for some of you, maybe you've never experienced that. You've never experienced a passionate moment with and for God. And maybe the chief reason why is because your picture of God is too small. It's too weak. Our image of God is maybe one of distance, or maybe it's academic information. Or it's a God who is one and done. I prayed my prayer. I punched my ticket. Not going to hell, going to heaven someday. But the problem is that is not a God worthy of our passion. And that is not the God of the Bible, it's a character. It's partial knowledge. It's a version of God that we created in our mind based on the mistaken belief that we can interpret life circumstances. And the tragedy for every one of us is one day, someday, it all comes to an end for all of us, all of our lives, and we get on the other side of this life. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to look back. We're going to look back and we're going to see that somebody or something or some project had all of our passion in life, or maybe it was scattered amongst a lot of things that We discovered they were kind of useless because they had no value beyond this life. Whether it was a job or career or a a hobby or whatever it was that we were doing to make ourselves look better, a persona that we tried to generate and create for ourselves based on how others, we want others to see us. And we're going to look back at the end of our lives and realize that because our picture of God was so incredibly small compared to who He really is, we'll step into the other side of eternity and we'll go, oh my gosh that's what you look like, that's what you really are all the time. I wasn't motivated, I wasn't passionate, because my version of you was so small and so wrong. And to the extent that we can feel regret in that moment, we'll feel regret. Because we'll see how much we missed out on what God might have done in and through us, and for us, and for the next generation, if only we'd have been able to see him and embrace him for who he really is. So here's my question. As we wrap up, I want to invite the band up. What does he look like? What does your picture of God that you have deep inside of you that motivates all of your behavior and how you relate to him and everyone around you, what does he look like? As we move towards the end of 2022, would you be willing to engage the Bible, maybe like never before, so that you can move into 2023 with a view of God that can equip you with a sacrificial love, a prevailing faith that doesn't fluctuate with the most current state of the market, the government, the world, or your world. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says this, Call on me, come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And James, the brother of Jesus, he reaffirms this in the New Testament when he writes, come near to God, and God will respond. God will come near to you. And James would say, I'll tell you who he is and what he is as he draws near to you. He is the God who is about the story of redemption. And he is loving, he is faithful, he is righteous, and he is just, and he is worthy of your passion. The band is going to sing a fantastic song called Promises. And honestly, maybe one of the best songs for this entire series. And just listen to the words. You're invited to sing, this, sing with the band if you know the words or if you can follow along. But, but just take them in and let them be a reminder that when it comes to God, great is His faithfulness to you and to me. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I lift all of us up to you because we live in a chaotic world. Um, it's been a very stressful world for the last few years, globally. And Father, there's just so many things with technology and screens and social media and streaming and so many distractions, Lord. And for some of us, quite honestly, we, just, we use it as an escape from our perceived reality And Father, I I pray for all of us that it will give us the courage to push the brake pedal on our lives and some things that you would help us to identify some of the things that we just realize are detrimental to our trust in you and that we begin to remove some of those things from our lives. We need your help to change patterns. And God, I pray for everyone You know us intimately. You know us better than we know ourselves. And so, Father, I I pray for everyone that in a dramatic and unmistakable way this, this week, that you would show up, that you would reveal yourself in a way unique to each individual to refresh for them that you are near, that you care, and that you would help bolster their view of you for every single one of us like David did whether it was the best of times or the darkest of times. So Father, I pray that for every single one of us and that God, by your spirit, the helper, you would help sustain that far, far beyond this week or this month or just the holidays, but that this could become a defining pattern of our life and that's passion because you've enabled us to see us, us to see you as you truly are. So Father, I I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.